Open your Bibles with me to Matthew 10, and we're going to try to complete today what we introduced last Sunday. We will observe the Lord's Supper, but first we want to consider Christ's training of his disciples following Christ in ministry and thinking about the future of our church and the work that the Lord would have for us to do. Let's think about what we're going to see today. Christ has done a lot of things with the disciples watching him minister, and now he's getting ready to send them out on their first mission trip out around the towns and villages of Galilee. He is giving some training to them in the first section here in chapter 10 that we'll look at. And then we'll consider maintaining the vision even through the years, the vision that was communicated to his disciples at that time will be the same vision that he wants us to have today, but we want to see exactly how that fits. And then attaining the goal, the goal of being conformed to the image of Christ and becoming like him. Now we asked a question last Sunday, what motivated Jesus' ministry to the multitudes? And we back up to chapter 9 and verse 36. When he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered, having no shepherd. If you don't have a heart of compassion and love people, you probably won't be much interested in what we would have to say today. Remember that Jesus summarized the entire law with just two things, love the Lord your God and love others. Christ's love for people motivated him to do everything he did while he was here on the earth. What was his plan for spreading the kingdom of God and launching his church? It was not an afterthought with Jesus. He had planned and provided, and later we will see protected the church. And this is what his mission was all about, to establish his church, to die for his church, to make her holy, and to present her spotless, even as the bride of Christ we read about in Ephesians 5. What was the plan? We mentioned last Sunday from Matthew 28, we see the final instruction, at least what we call the Great Commission, and let's read it. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And then later in the epistles, we get a very succinct explanation of that process, 2 Timothy 2.2. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Train disciples who know how to disciple others. It's that simple. That's the plan. There is no other plan. Now, as we think about that, let's consider several important observations. Paul uses sports analogies in his writings, so I guess that means that we can use them too. Jim Putman, in his book, Real Life Discipleship, observes that church is a team sport. Did you get that? Church is a team sport. 
as we are training disciples, we have to keep this in mind. We're all members of a team. What does a typical church look like? Well, you've heard it said before that the church looks kind of like a football game. There are 22 guys on the field who are desperately in need of some rest, and there are 85,000 in the stands who are desperately in need of some exercise. Well, it's not that way in our church, but we don't want it to slide in that direction. We want everybody who is on the team to be involved in the work of the team. Now, a lot of time we are preaching at young people, but today I want to give some observations for the older people. Not necessarily the old people, but the older people. Coaches must have a coach's mentality. Coaches must have a coach's mentality. What is a coach's mentality? Now, sometimes in a church, we see the older women following the mandate that's given better than the men sometimes. Older women are trained, the younger women, to love their husbands, love their children. But uh, the older men and the older women are coaches who have to have a coach's mentality. Now, if you're out on the football field, the coach, who is a good coach, might say, now today we're going to be working with the wide receivers. You guys come over here, and we're going to walk through the pattern that you're going to be running, and we're going to show you why we do it this way. Now, son, come over here, and let me show you your stance, how you're going to start off. And then when you make your move and you get separation from your cover man, immediately you want to look over your outside shoulder and you want to watch that ball coming into your hands that are facing you. Not facing out like this because it's going to hit your hand drop on the ground. But you're making a little cradle for that ball and it's going to come right in and then you want to wrap it up and not be thinking about marching on down the field, but you want to be sure you've got that ball in possession. And then you take off down the field. Now let's come over here and get with the quarterback and let's run some of these patterns and see how you do. Now that is a coach's mentality. But be careful. The guy on the left end is not a coach. He is an imposter. And the reason is, he didn't have a coach's mentality. He has a player's mentality. Do you know what the player's mentality is? Hey man, I could catch a ball better than that myself. Get out the way and let me show you how to do it. That's the player's mentality. Now, how do you think that's going to translate into what is going on at the church? I wasn't really a coach, I was the chaplain. I, I was out there a good bit, but the highlight of the year for me is when the faculty played the football team. We beat them all up and down the field. That's a player's mentality. Well, what happens in the church when you bring in that mentality? I can do it myself. It's too much trouble to get anybody else to do it. Besides, they don't know how to do it and I don't have time to teach them. I'm just going to go ahead and get the job done and forget about it. Now, we do need players in the church, but if we're going to disciple anyone, we have got to have some folks with a coach's mentality. Now, third thing. Players on the team must see themselves as critical 
to the success of the team. Those guys in the picture, Steve, Gary, and Jeff, are high school coaches. But I have a friend who many of you know who, is a, who has been a college coach, Walter Lewis, coached at the University of Alabama and the University of Kentucky. What do you think the difference is between a high school coach and a college coach? Well, Walter traveled a good bit. Because you see, in college, we recruit the best players from all around the country. And you've got to go out there and find them and talk to them and meet with their families. And we might even recruit a punter from Australia and a kicker from Germany. So there's a lot of travel going on. But a high school coach has to recognize and train and develop his own personnel starting down at the middle school. If there's some guy down there with some talent, we've got an eye on him. We've got plans for him. Now, in some major high schools, they may do a little recruiting on the side, but they're not supposed to do that. Now, how do you think that's going to work for the church? Most large churches recruit outside the church. You need a staff member, you call in a professional recruitment firm, and you get some guy from California or Georgia or somewhere, and you bring him in. Now, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that, but what does that say to the people in the church. We don't have what we need to make this church succeed. So we got to bring in some guy from somewhere and he can do it. And what's the response to that? Well, let the professionals do it. Isn't that why we give our money anyway? To pay the people on staff to do what needs to be done. That is not Christ's idea of the church. And you see, it's just kind of a subtle thought that's given an insinuation that, uh, hey, we've got people on staff who are trained professionally. Now, it's good to have some training. It's good to go to a seminary. A lot of things there can be very helpful. Training is available now all over the place. Training will be available right here next Saturday morning when all of our men get together for discipleship. We've had some good sessions there, and we encourage you to come. Well, we want to be a church that is training others. What will be our recruiting model? Discipleship takes place in the home with the family, dad and mom discipling their children. It takes place in the church, and then we take it out into the world. Certainly we have to evangelize people. They have to be Christians before we can disciple them. But that's our goal, is to have discipleship everywhere. We'll see why that's so important. What is a disciple? A disciple is a follower or a learner of Christ. Now look at this in Matthew 4.19. Then Jesus said to them, three things here, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. A disciple is a follower of Christ. Now, obviously, we may have some people who are more committed to following Christ than are others. But I think we could all agree a disciple is a follower of Christ. If you're a follower of Christ, you are a disciple. I will make you a disciple's life is being changed to become like Christ. If my life is not being changed to become like Christ, something's wrong. Either I've hit a little backsliding or... Maybe I didn't understand the process of how it's supposed to work. 
Maybe, well, we'll look at some other possibilities as we go along. And then the third thing, he is committed to being a fisher of men, the mission of Christ. A disciple is committed to that mission. Now we want to look briefly because some questions come up here in the very first verse of chapter 10, Matthew. What authority did Jesus give his 12 disciples? And when he had called his 12 disciples to them, to him, he gave them authority or power in some translations over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. That should get folks' attention in the land. Healing on demand. The disciples can go anywhere they want to go and they can heal someone. First time, every time. Now here's an important question. What authority does Jesus give us as His disciples today? It's going to be a little bit different. And let's ask the question, do we still have healing on demand? Well, we do still have healing, but it's on God's command, not on my demand. And sometimes people are healed, and sometimes they are not healed, and sometimes they die and go to heaven. And we see that in the Scripture. It's very clear. We'll look at some Scriptures. Now, error is propagated in that area because you see people saying things that would be very contrary to what you find in the Scripture. For instance, Benny Hinn writes in a little book, Rise and Be Healed, and he says, and I quote, There will be no sickness for the saint of God. Page 32, he promises to heal all, everyone, any, any whatsoever, everything, all our diseases. That means not even a headache, sinus problem, not even a toothache, Nothing, no sickness should come your way. Page 62, if your body belongs to God, it does not and cannot belong to sickness. And page 65, God's greatest desire for the church of Jesus Christ is that we be in total and perfect health. And he's talking about physical health. Where do these guys get this stuff? You would think that they never read the Bible. Elisha got sick and he died in 2 Kings 13 and everybody knew that he was going to die. David's child got sick and died even though David had prayed and fasted for him. Hezekiah got sick and he was healed. And he lived 15 more years and then he died in 2 Kings 20. Daniel fainted and was sick for days in Daniel 8 verse 27. Lazarus got sick and he died and he was healed not because of his great faith, because he was dead. And then he died again later on. Dorcas got sick and she died, and she was healed, but again not because of her faith, because she was dead. And then she lived some more, and then she died. Timothy seemed to have a chronic illness in 1 Timothy 5. <clears throat> excuse me, 5. Trophimus got sick and Paul left him sick at Miletus. Many think that Paul himself suffered from some kind of physical malady because he's always talking about his thorn in the flesh. At least in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he mentions that he's praying about that several periods of time. Epaphroditus got sick and he almost died when he went to visit Paul in prison from Philippi carrying a message from the church. Why do these things happen? 
What's going on here? If healing is a matter of believing it and speaking it, as the word faith movement claims, then why would Paul leave this guy sick in Miletus? Why wouldn't he just heal him and he could go with him to complete the missionary journey? Well, it reminds me of a notice in a church bulletin. Due to the pastor's illness, healing services will be canceled until further notice. Now, if we can heal people, then if we have that same authority as disciples, we ought to all leave the church this afternoon and go to the hospital in your area and clean out the beds. And we wouldn't have much need for hospitals. God can and certainly does heal, but He doesn't heal on demand. He has given us a different authorization and we're going to see what it is. In fact, we've already looked at it. Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And then he says, imperative sentence, You go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and so forth as we read. This is what we are authorized to do. We are authorized to evangelize people, to disciple people, and that includes a long list that we considered last Sunday. It includes helping the poor, taking care of widows and orphans. It includes all kinds of things to show the love of Christ. Should we pray for sick people? Certainly we should. And if someone is sick, let them call for the elders of the church. Let them be anointed with oil. And the prayer of faith will heal that one if it's God's will for them to be healed. So we want to be very clear about what we are authorized to do. In Mark 16, 15, we see something very much like that. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every nation. Well, we have a problem in our church today, a modern church. We're not going into all the world and preaching the gospel to every creature. We're bringing all the world into the church many times. And that has caused a dilution in the church. The world's entertainment, the world's dress, the world's music, the world's values. And so we see a lot of false disciples instead of true disciples. They're just going in a different direction than the direction that God has called us to evangelism and discipleship. Now here comes a very important question. We've looked at this in our Tuesday night Bible study, but let's take a review because we need to be clear about this. Is it possible to be a disciple and not be a Christian? We say, oh yeah, a disciple of Buddha, a disciple of Mohammed. You can be a disciple of whoever you want to be a disciple of. No, I'm talking about is it possible to be a disciple of Christ and not be a Christian? And the answer I would give to that is yes. And here's the verse. John 6.60, Jesus has been talking here to a group of Jewish people, and uh, some of his disciples are there. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this about eating his body and drinking his blood, we'll get into the symbolism of the Lord's Supper as we partake of the Lord's Supper. When they heard that, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand this? And then in verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Now that's pretty scary. Did they have salvation and lose it? No. They were following Christ, but they were not true believers. 
because they didn't really buy into what Christ was telling them. He's going to tell us a few other things in chapter 10. We want to see if we would accept those things. Now let's turn that around and let's ask it this way. Is it possible to be a Christian and not be a disciple of Christ? Because some people would say, well, yeah, I believe in God and I believe Christ came to die for my sin. And I don't want, they usually don't say it, but you can tell they don't want much to do with holiness or the church, as Cody said, or any of that. They just want a fire insurance policy and I've got it and I do believe and here we go. Well, if we're asking, is it possible for a true believer not to be a follower of Christ? I think the answer is no. Because that's what it means if I'm a Christian. I am a follower of Christ. Now, I may be a baby who's learning how to walk and I'm kind of stumbling around. And I may be an adult who just trips on some sin and falls flat on my face and knock my nose crooked. That can get your attention, I will assure you. But if I'm a true Christian, I'm going to get up and I'm going to follow Christ. Now, there are all kind of verses that we have looked at where warnings are given to those who say, yes, I'm a follower of Christ, to be sure that they have the real thing down inside. It's simple. It's simple. I've got to believe on Jesus but that entails some things. It's not just an intellectual belief as we have noted. Luke 14, 27. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now that's on your study guide, the cross, bearing the cross. And we'll take a look at that in just a moment. We see on a number of occasions in the New Testament instances where the rich young ruler wants to be a follower of Christ, but all of a sudden, he's going away sadly because he didn't want to do what Christ asked him to do. What Christ asked him to do may not be specifically what Christ is asking us to do, but there are some certain things in common. And one is take up your cross daily and follow Him. 1 John 2.19, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. And they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. Now, what's the difference between a disciple and an apostle? We don't have anyone today who is fulfilling the apostolic office. We would believe that that was closed. Uh, you remember Paul was called by Christ on the Damascus Road and he had the vision but apostles were ones who had seen Christ and who had been with Him. An apostolos is an authorized representative. It's someone who is sent as an ambassador. And now Christ is getting ready to send out all of these disciples, these 12 special disciples, who have been trained with Him. They've been going around with Him, learning how you do it. And He's getting ready to send them out and He gives them some instructions. What were his instructions? Well, verse 5 and 6, if you have your Bible open there, where to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, he does mention the Gentiles in verse 18, but right now we're going to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
They are the ones that have the knowledge of the Old Testament. They are the ones who should understand that the Messiah has come. Verse 7, what to say? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's already said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn from whatever you're following and follow me. I'm going to reveal to you the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is within you, or the kingdom of God. Verse 8, what to do? Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. A little different from what we do. We do what of that we can. If you're a medical doctor, you can certainly help to heal the sick. Maybe you have some training in medicine like Eric Little did. Do everything you can. But we don't have the healing on demand like they did. And then in uh, the next verse, 9 and 10, what to take? Not much. Don't take a suitcase. Don't take any two changes of clothes or sandals or staff, for the worker is worthy of his support. Now, when we sent out um, Andrew and Naomi, did they need to follow that verse there? No, because these are special instructions for a short-term mission that we will seek. In verse 16 through 18, verse 25, verse 34, what should you expect? Opposition, affliction, persecution, division. If you make a decision for Christ, that decision will cause division. And if you're pleasing everybody, you might better check it out because some people don't like the fact that you would be committed to Christ. Now, Jesus wanted His disciples to learn something what did he want them to learn? In Matthew 6.30, they all come back together shortly thereafter. This was a short-term trip. They gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And then in Luke 22.35, he said to them, When I sent you out without any money bag, knapsack, sandals, did you lack anything? No, nothing. That was what he wanted them to learn that He would provide for them. Now, the very next verse says, And He said to them, But now, whoever has a money bag, let him take it. Likewise, a knapsack, and he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. So much for sword control in Palestine. Why do they need a sword? Chop off the high priest's servant's ear? No. They needed a sword because they would be traveling where there were robbers, where there were wild animals, and it was good just to have your weapon to be ready to defend yourself. You can righteously defend yourself, I believe, according to Scripture. So quickly, what are some of the characteristics of a mature disciple that are mentioned here in Matthew? We could look at a lot of things from other places in the Bible, but as we close, we want to just take a look quickly at what's going on here. Verse 24 and 25, conforming to Christ. Take up the cross daily. Take up your cross and follow me. What in the world does that mean? Well, it's figurative, obviously. Nobody's trying to crucify you on a cross yet. So it's figurative, and the cross in Jesus' day was an instrument of great shamefulness. You had to carry your cross to the place of execution, many instances. It was an instrument that represented great pain, great humiliation, great desperation as you're just hanging there sometimes for days, hanging helpless on a cross 
in excruciating pain. So what would we say? The Christian needs to embrace in his life whatever comes, whatever is painful, whatever is burdensome, whatever is wearisome, whatever is considered shameful. He has to embrace it just like Christ embraced the cross. Now, if he can do something about it, do something about it. If you can righteously change the situation. Many times you cannot. Many times there may be some sickness or physical malady that you can't change. God is working through that. We are gold refined in the fire. And when He turns up the heat, we say praise the Lord. He has a purpose in it. If He wants to heal me so that I can go on doing His work, praise the Lord. If He wants me to draw close to Him as I am suffering, then that is equally good according to Scripture. Because He works all things together for good. That's what it means to take up my cross, to face whatever God sends to me, and to say, rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, in all things give thanks, for this is His will concerning you in Christ Jesus. Then go down to the church and get in touch with the elders and get them praying for you. And get some help, because that's what the body of Christ is all about. Well, the next thing, conquering fear. Conforming to Christ, conquering fear. Verse 28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. Verse 36, Therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed. And verse 27, Communicating the message. Why does He say, What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light? Do you remember Christ at this time was teaching in parables? There were a lot of dark sayings that He gave because He wasn't ready yet to be crucified. But the disciples understood some of those things. At least He explained some of them. Now, we don't have to teach in parables. We can use the parables of Christ, but we can put it right out in the light. And then verse 32, confessing Christ. Everyone, therefore, who shall confess me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. That's not the preaching and teaching. That's just out on the street corner. Somebody says something, whatever, just confessing Christ. And then the last one, contemplating division. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth, verse 34. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword, because the message divides people. Well, <clears throat> are we willing to find our lives? Last question. How does one find out what life is really all about? we got people looking everywhere to figure this one out. He who finds his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. If you're willing to give up the comfort and ease that this world has to offer, I don't mean you've got to throw out the air conditioning out of your house, but if you're willing to make the sacrifice of your time and your energy and your effort to follow Christ, then he says you receive abundant life here on this earth. He came that we might have life and have it more abundantly and also eternal life. If you're willing to lose your life for Christ's sake, oh, this is my life. I've got to have all these things. I'm going to do this. Maybe I'll just go to church. No, if I'm really willing to get in business with Christ and be a disciple and disciple others 
and do what He wants me to do, then I find what everyone is looking for in life. The most exciting thing in the world is a changed life. Mine and somebody else's that I might help to see the light and apply it in their lives. Now, if you're not willing to do that, you lose both. You lose the abundant life. You might lose the eternal life. Not that you had it and lost it, but you might not have it. It's so simple to say in my heart, Lord, I am willing to follow You. And whatever that means, I am trusting You. You're the coach. I'm the player. And whatever You want me to do, if You send me into a pretty tough ball game, I'm ready to go. Because others have gone on before, and I know that's where I'm going to really find fulfillment in my life. Now we come to the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is all about the cross. The cross reminds us of Jesus' suffering, paying the penalty for our sin. But you know, a lot of times I think about the cross as the instrument that made it possible for me to go to heaven. And that's true. But it's something else as well. It's the instrument that made it possible for me to be conformed to the image of Christ. And that means to be holy. To put away sin and to put on holiness. Put on the righteousness of Christ. Now that may take some effort. That may take some suffering. That might even call for some persecution. I'm not looking for all of that, but when it comes, I'm not surprised. If they call the head of the house, Beelzebub, what are they going to call the members of the household? And it's heating up, if you've noticed in our culture. It's heating up a bit now. So this morning as we observe the Lord's Supper, let me ask you to examine your own heart. Are you willing to be crucified with Christ? To put to death, mortify the flesh, the old nature, put those things aside in your life? It doesn't mean I crucify my body, literally, physically. I'm mortifying those old desires and tendencies that keep creeping up on me. As we pass out the elements, let's give some thought for what it means to be crucified with Christ. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your amazing plan for the church. We thank you that you have included not only your chosen people from the Old Testament, from Israel, but you have included the Gentiles. We thank you that we are here today, and we thank you, Lord, that you have established this ordinance for us to be able to remember your death and burial and resurrection and what that means for us. And we pray, Lord, that we might be able to look in our hearts and say, yes, we will follow you. If it means that our bodies would be broken, if it means that we would shed some blood, we would follow you because you know what is best for us. And Lord, we want to follow you just in the everyday challenges of life when we don't have to shed blood, but where we do have to mortify the old nature and put off those things that are displeasing to you. 
So we thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming to this earth. We thank you that uh, you were willing for your body to be broken for us. And we pray these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Scripture says from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, And when he, Jesus, had given thanks, he took the bread and broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Well, here is the fruit of the vine, which represents the precious blood of Christ, the Lamb without spot or blemish. Let's join together in thanking Christ for shedding His blood. Let's be reminded. And let me ask Tim Bolton if he would lead us as we pray together. We want to have a time of prayer now as we thank the Lord for other things and as we lift up to Him those who would need our prayers and circumstances that we know about. I want to call on Martin Beal, if you would, to uh, begin our prayer. We do have a microphone that uh, David is bringing that if you want to use, you certainly uh, may use. And let's uh, be praying silently, even as our men lead us. And then I will close our prayer. Martin, would you begin, please? God, Father, 